Welcome to Gaia's Consciousness Podcast, expanding your mind and spirit. Learn even more at Gaia.com. Watch interviews, movies, and original series created to empower the evolution of consciousness. For more information, visit GaiaPodcast.com. Your journey begins here. The subject of parallel realities is emerging more and more prominent in our conversation as we begin to understand the complex nature of reality. When it crosses over into the dream world, it becomes really interesting. Author Robert Moss has given us yet even more to think about in this book, Mysterious Realities. It recounts experiences of both parallel existences and dream time and where they clash and cross over. And this is such a fun book. <laughs> Thank you, Regina. Great to be with you. I mean, it's kind of outrageous. It has a lot of outrageous stuff in there. And, I'm, and so, I, first of all, I've interviewed you a couple of other times where you stayed very pointed on the subject of dreams and, and methods and so forth. But this is a collection of stories that are of your own experience. And what, what prompted you to write this book? Well, I think they're fun. I think they are entertaining. And I think they're illuminating in the sense that they can provoke people into thinking about what is possible for them. You know, you go dreaming. What does that mean? Does it just mean that what you ate last night is commenting on the state of your digestion? Or does it mean that maybe you traveled to another world or maybe someone from another world visited you? So it is to break or open the carapace of our limited thinking about these things. You know, science tells us as a hypothesis, we're living right now in the many worlds, in, in, in the nested parallel universes. This is a popular thesis This is very hard for people to get their minds around That's right. in terms of our uh, visceral understanding. Go ahead and explain it the way you see it and science sees it and where that crosses over. Well, uh, when Hugh Everett came up with this thesis many years ago, he was laughed out of court. But today, physics thinks it's quite tenable that we are living right now in uncountable parallel universes, and there's a, there's a universe right next to us where you and I are not talking at Gaia, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But as you say, how do we get our heads around that notion? What does it mean to us if it's true? Well, dreaming is one of the ways to explore firsthand the possible reality of the many worlds. If you monitor your dreams and journal them over time, if you have dreams you remember, you might notice that again and again you're in a situation which is not exactly your present life, right? You're still with your former partner or in your former job, and that could mean that part of you stayed behind through what shamans call soul loss, but it also mean that part of you is living on that parallel track, having made a choice you didn't make. What good is it to understand this? Well, sometimes we discover that we can harvest lessons and gifts from our parallel selves who might have done something we haven't done. There's that parallel you who became the musician and the art or the artist when you thought you just had to earn money and do the job. Maybe you can reach to that parallel self who has those creative gifts and bring those into your present life. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. I mean, I could be so rude and totally bogart the mic here and say, oh, I remember this dream. I remember that. But I am going to try to zip it and not do that. But I will say one thing, <laughs> if I may. Before we launch into these incredible stories, I notice in the dream world this, this one thing I've always been intrigued with is there is an alternate world. In my case, I go to an alternate world that's like Earth, but not exactly like Earth. Everything's different to scale. You're capable of different things. There's a city within a city that I know well. I even know which shops to go to in that city, which cafes, and it's buried in the middle of another city. And each time in the dream, it's like, oh my, I'm in Rome this time. There's the wall to my city. So I'm just saying, I've had a lifetime of going into this, these parallel, it's, I thought it was dream world, 
but it appears it's just a parallel reality. Oh, Regina, you've got a wonderful book in you, A Shopper's Guide to Alternate Realities. Oh, I mean, it's crazy. It, it, it's, 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 it has to be done. Oh, uh, bakeries in particular. Yes. Well, you know, there's, there's a phrase, the imaginal realm. It's not a household phrase yet, mm -hmm. but it might become might become one. It means that there are realms of true imagination mm -hmm. where there are cities and temples and palaces yes. and shopping malls created by human imagination over the centuries, over the millennia actually. And they're arguably not less real and not much less real than anything made of bricks and mortar and glass and steel in this world that we live in. And you know, actually shamans, creators, mystics have always wanted to go to these places, these places of true imagination. So a lot of my stories in Mysterious Realities are about travels in this architecture of non-ordinary reality. So how do we know, like in that case, how would I know if I'm dropping into just a constant parallel reality that I dip into, or if it's an imaginal realm that I created? Or is there any difference anyway? There may not be that much difference That's because, I mean, everything in the world that we're talking in right now is the product, actually, of human imagination mm -hmm. inter intersecting with the materials of the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no building on the planet Earth that is not the result of imagination, for exactly. example. So it's the same in non-ordinary reality, alternate reality. And arguably, there are structures there that are older than the Eiffel Tower, older than the pyramids mm -hmm. that have been constructed, again, by imagination. These include the environments we go when we die. They, they, they include the Bardo states, the transitional yes. zones. So all of this is quite interesting if you want to know something about your options after death. I'm very interested in that subject. I find the people who have some kind of first-hand experience or idea about what happens after death tend to approach the challenges of this life with more courage and clarity and even a sense of divine comedy. Yeah, so exactly. some of my stories are about, let's get humorous about what happens after death. Let's have a look at it. Let's not be too drab and mournful about it, but let's be brave enough to take a good look. <laughs> Well, what a wonderful segue, because we're going right up to something you thought might have been your death at one point in time. We're going to go through, I've chosen a few stories in the book because obviously we can't cover them all, or this would be a six-part mini-series. So given the constraints of time, let's start with the storytelling of crows. And I thought, did this really happen to you? It happened in an airport. Let's set the stage. Well, the story, uh, as told in Mysterious Reality, starts with me slipping at SeaTac Airport, Seattle Airport. And uh, my body is, is horizontal above a hard surface, and it's going to come down very hard, and I can hear people screaming. But it's as if there's a giant hand that is sustaining me and holding me up, breaking this fall. And in this moment, I go off into, if you like, an imaginal world in which I am talking, as if I've been pulled out of my body for a while. And I'm talking to one of my preferred forms of the death lord, Yama. Yama, well known in India and in the East. And I'm having a conversation with Yama, who's not in a good mood to begin with. He's showing himself as a sort of steaming mountain with boar tusks and all sorts of other <laughs> appendages. Not very nice at all. But we have an interview about, you know, what would make it worthwhile for me to be allowed to go on living in this earth. And what Yama basically tells me is you must go on making stories that entertain death. So I guess that's the real answer to your opening question. I wrote this book because these are stories that I think entertain my death. And as the story unfolds, there are episodes from my life in different realities. And I want to share one that took place on an airplane flying back from that airport where I had the fall. Yes. And, and also get at some point tie into the storytelling oh, songs of a dead dreamer. Yes. This is an important part. No, okay, leave it so, all together. Okay, so back to SeaTac Airport. Mm -hmm. 
I'm, uh, I'm stopping at the newsstand and they've got an interesting collection of Penguin classics. And there's one called Songs of a Dead Dreamer. I've never heard of this book. It's a collection of horror stories by an author unknown to me, but I can't resist the title. The cover is gruesome, but I can't <laughs> resist the. So in my hand is Songs of a Dead Dreamer when I suddenly <laughs> slip on a spill of liquid, I'm horizontal above the hard surface, come down hard and people are gathered around when I come back from About my- About to become a bet dead dreamer. <laughs> when I come back from my, from my, you know, sort of pa- pa- close to death experience, people are gathered, should we call 911? I think I'm okay. I say, I get up. I'm slightly, slightly sore <laughs> along my, one of my sides, but really I haven't suffered anything much. It's incomprehensible. It was a really hard fall, yeah. but I'm fine. And you're fine. a big guy. You're and I'm, tall, I, I'm a big, big. guy and, 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 and I should have damaged something, but it was like one of those moments when you feel, Regina, something from the deeper reality has reached into your world and grabbed you to get your attention. In the experience of coincidence or synchronicity, we often feel this. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as my fall at mm-hmm. on that airport concourse. But don't we feel that when interesting synchronicity is happening, we feel that something is reaching through the curtains mm-hmm. of our ordinary understanding to tickle us awake or muss up our hair or, mm. or, or pull something from under us to get our attention, to push us forward or pull us back. I felt at that moment that something had literally reached into my reality pulled me into another reality to remind me of something fundamental about my life assignment right now, and then laid me down gently so the physical body was still okay. It felt like one of those interventions. And I would say the intervention from my point of view was by no less than my personal death. Yes. Communicating with me. Now let's talk about what happens on the return trip. On the return trip, I'm wondering what's going to happen next, of course. (laughs) I play this game on airplanes all the time. It's part of my survival strategy as a frequent flyer. What story is this flight going to get me? And the story looks almost over the top. There's a very tall woman, her height increased by her high-heeled black boots and her top hat that is capping her outfit, black leather over and a bustier. And that's in this dimension in reality, on the airplane This is in physical reality. Because when I was reading it, I thought... Now, I'm confused. Was she in his imagination or what? <laughs> this is exactly playing out. It's not hyped at all. The story mm-hmm. is told in a just-so fashion. So she I, has a top hat she's on. She's got a top hat, high black boots. leather, high-heeled, high boots. And, of course, she sits down next to me. And she parks a small, rotund guy by the window. She's sitting next to me, and she's sniffing. And she looks around and says, I rather like this flight. And I look at her. This is the start of the conversation. Uh, All the seats are full. Don't you know if the plane is going to crash actuarially, 20% of the seats will be empty? This is what she says to me to start the conversation. So I look at her outfit more closely, and she's wearing gloves with big death's heads on the the back of the gloves. (laughs) And I've been thinking about death and my my arrangement arrangement with death. And the conversation is sort of gusting. She reveals she's a dominatrix. It's not really my scene. So after that, <laughs> things are silent for a while and then we pick up. She wants creme de menthe. They don't have it. She's having double vodka. Then she says to me with knowing nothing about me in ordinary reality, do you think the dead talk to us in our dreams? I say, absolutely. Oh, good, she says. My dead ex-husband turned up last week in my dream. He stood over my bed and he said, I've got a great job. I'm making movies and doing music the dreams that are being made for people in film studios on the other side. I really love my job making dream movies for people to watch in the (laughs) night. So this is good. We have a conversation about that. I still haven't identified myself in any way. But let's cut to the chase. She says, I love crows and ravens. Of course you do, my dear, I say. (laughs) No surprise. Do you know there's a collective noun for a group of crows or ravens? Oh, yes, I'm very Mm -hmm. proud. It's a murder of crows and unkindness of ravens. Everybody knows that, she says. 
there's one word that applies to both. Do you know what it is? You're going to tell me. Yes, I am, dear. A storytelling of crows, a storytelling of ravens. Do you know why this is the name for a collective of these blackbirds? You're going to tell me. Yes, I am, because you need to hear this. I once saw this. I saw a storytelling of crows gathered around a crow that was trying to entertain them with a story. He was a poor storyteller. When he finished, they pecked him to death. Interesting. I remember that in the book. And I have my deal with my death to go on producing stories that are entertaining death. And she's telling me a story about crows, blackbirds, harbingers of death, which involves the penalty for failing to be an entertaining storyteller. So once again, the real Mm -hmm. reason I composed this book or put it together for my experiences is... You had the fear of the crows put in you. Yes, the (laughs) the the crows made me do it. I love it. And, uh, and you have done it successfully, I want to say. And uh, I think uh, one thing that just popped out there, people are saying, wait, 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 wait what? Um, and that ha- well, there are a lot of things. But one of them was this notion, actuarially speaking, not actually speaking, actuarily. speaking as an actuary, yes. which is someone who really knows how to crunch numbers and ratios. Yes. Yes. Is that true? Did you t- where did that come from? That's interesting because that indicates something else. If 20% of the seats are empty on flights that go down, that means somehow some people got somewhere and probably canceled at the last minute not to be on that flight. Right. I did not fact check the dominatrix with the death set I just find that interesting. But I have seen seen similar information in in, in news reports over the years. I did not fact check that version. But I've heard heard things like that. And I think there's a certain body of evidence that there will be empty seats when the plane or the train or something else is going to crash. So if you're on a packed flight, good, because we're flying out today. So, all right. Um, Now, (laughs) so... So now we know why you did this, um, why this book exists. You're here to tell stories in such a way that you're not essentially pecked to death, right? So that's your job. Wonderful now, summary. Let's go on to a next. The ne- well, let's go on to a, the next story I chose. I mean, there are many, many stories because I found this absolutely fascinating. You visited in Hampstead, right? In England, yes. in, in London, Hampstead. Yes. You visited the final home of Freud. Yes. He's not exactly who I thought he was by your rendering of this story. Please tell us about this man who was much more complex, who claims to be an atheist, and yet is surrounded by very unusual artifacts, lots of them. It is. You can actually visit Freud's last home in Hampstead, and you can see this for, for yourself. In his house, his last house, are about 2,000 miniature statues of deities and spirits from many cultures, particularly from the ancient Mediterranean, ancient Egypt, that part of the world, but also from China and other places. He called these his old and grubby gods. He would go nowhere without them. In Vienna, before he had to flee, he had 3,000. He managed to bring 2,000 to London. He would not travel without a selection of his divine statues, a suitcase full. When he was consulting with a client, he would arrange the answerers, as he sometimes called them, the statues, the embodied, spirited statues, the breathing images, the Greeks called them, mm-hmm. who would counsel him on his relationship with the patient. Sometimes, if he was dealing with a tricky case, he'd station a particular divine statue between him and the patient to keep a border, to keep some kind of guardianship over the situation. So he might have been a godless Jew, as he called himself, but he did firmly believe to and adhere to what he called his old and grubby gods. And in this story, I write about his
is actually very affectionate relationship with an image of Horus. Yes. Which this there there's there's history here. He did have an image of Horus, which is probably a counterfeit in the sense it wasn't from ancient Egypt. It was from the 19th century, made by a very good faker. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the story, Freud's affection for the image of Horus is strong, and we know that in his dreams of the uh, what happened to his parents after death, he saw Horus uh, as a guide, an escort. So we know he had a certain sympathy for Horus. Uh, in the story, it is brought to Freud's attention that his statue is probably a fake, but he basically says, no, no, it's for real. This is how gods are made. They're made by your belief. They're mm -hmm. made by your faith. So it's very interesting to me that Freud, whatever his you know, umbrella ideology in practice, talked to the, his gods, to the embodied image of the, of the gods the way the ancients did. Because all of these statues were made for use. They were made as conveyances. They were made as vehicles for the gods and the spirits to speak to humans and interact with them. And Freud used them exactly the way an ancient pagan would have done. And that to me was absolutely fascinating. What he really meant is I'm not a practicing, uh, a member of the practicing Judeo-Christian faith. Right. That's what he was saying. Right. Not that I'm godless. He was deeply entrenched yes. with the gods. Obviously, yes. they were guiding him, and they were even used as divination tools almost absolutely. for him. I, I Thank you for sharing that. I find that absolutely fascinating. And like you said, he used to carry this one little kind of, I think you said reddish version of this, the, he, what turned out to be a fake, apparently, of Horus, and he carried it with him at all times as the great protector god. So, um, and he said... In your book, you, the way you position it is, it doesn't matter if it's a fake. I gave him life. Well, My these, belief gave yes, him life. These things are, it's like, it's like, the, the, these things, it's like the Velveteen Rabbit story. These things are in soul, they're inspirited by belief, by faith, by love. Yes, they are. And I'm going to go to another one that has to do with statues and spirits. Because this story, I, I was kind of horrified at first, but I started laughing. And that has to do with you and our great goddess. You will never be disrespectful to her again, <laughs> Artemis. <laughs> You're making me really nervous now. <laughs> I want to go there next. Okay. So let's talk about what happened. The story starts in Istanbul, and it ends in Greece, if I recall, right? Well, it's played out in the Greek part of what is now Turkey. It's basically played out in the in the western part of Turkey. Okay, thank you. It, it's 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 played out at 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 Ephesus, the, mm -hmm. the famous city of the great goddess Artemis, and it's um, it's denouement is played out not far from Izmir, famous seaport on the Aegean Sea, and it's a very self-mocking story. It's a story of my getting myself into mythic trouble. Yes, so, and I'm trying to remember mm. her name. I have it somewhere here, but I'm hopping all over myself. Uh -huh. The woman that you were with. Uh -huh. I love that. Okay, uh -huh. what is her name? It starts with an A. Uh, I called her Asli in Asli. the story. Okay, I called yes. her Asli in the story. Uh, so it, act, it probably really begins at the ancient temple of uh, Apollo in these, in these parts. And I'm there and with, with some of my group. I'm going to lead a workshop, and there aren't many tourists around. So I say, let's chant the words that awaken an ancient god. So we're chanting an ancient, an ancient Greek words to awaken Apollo. And a Dutch friend in the group says, Robert, aren't there consequences for awakening old gods? And I say in my madness, don't worry, dear boy, they're family. <laughs> now, think what it means to announce that your family with the Greek gods who are known as the most dysfunctional family in all of literature. It might have begun there. So then we are at the museum in Ephesus, which has the famous many-breasted, if they are breasts, there's a great discussion about what they are, but this huge figure, this famous figure 
of Artemis of Ephesus, who's not exactly the Greek Artemis with the bow and arrow and the deer. She's something more. She's also the mountain mother. She's also Kibele. She's also, she's many things. She's the great goddess. And whether these are figs or bulls, testicles or breasts or whatever, she is a potent deity. Mm. And she's wearing a whole city or a whole nation on her head as her crown. And opposite her in the museum is another version of the goddess, appearing somewhat younger, somewhat daintier, somewhat more elegant, somewhat more beautiful. And I'm standing between the two living statues worshipped by hundreds of thousands of people that have received their prayers. And I say, pointing at the younger one, I think this is the one I'm going to ask out for, din ask out for dinner. The Turks in the room gasp. The Turkish woman <laughs> gasps. She, her color changes. We, Robert, she says, do you know what you just did? You just insulted. You just insulted a deity worshipped by people for thousands of years. Oh, yes, I did make a, I did sort of overdo it. It was just a cavalier remark. It was just a casual remark. You know, I'm a boy. I'm like that. Well, <laughs> there, are just a lad. There, are, there are consequences. One of the animals with which our Artemis in both the Greek and the Anatolian forms associated is the boar. She's also associated with the bear. But we are down on the beach. The now, wait a minute. Osley had, she had a tea, or she was reading her coffee grounds. Yes. Right, before you went to the beach, That's right? That's true, yes. You're and good. Didn't, yeah, I, rem I do remember some things pretty well because I was engaged. Okay, and as she read them, she, she saw the image of a boar. She saw the image and of a boar. And she shuddered. She saw the image of a boar, a wild pig. And the Greeks used to say in the famous book on dream interpretation by Artemidorus from which Freud borrowed his title, Artemidorus says when the goddess is enraged, she takes the form of a boar. When women are enraged, they can be as wild as a, as a she-boar. So some of us are on the beach <laughs> shortly after this, and it's a beach where there are wild boar, but the wild boar have never been a problem for humans. Mm -hmm. They've always coexisted. Mm -hmm. But as we're making a picnic, a wild boar runs at me, my back is turned, and bites me. It doesn't tusk me, but it bites me over the second chakra at the back, making a very big Near hole and a very large bruise. <laughs> and people are running around beating the, 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 beating the, the boar away, and, and, and the keeper of of, of the beach chair says, I've worked here for 20 years. No boar has ever attacked a human until now. Oh, things are happening differently. <laughs> when I eventually go to a pharmacy and... But didn't he, did he try to attack you again? He, did he come he, back he after see, He you? seemed interested, but by this point, there's a They're very, really... very dominant uh, Turkish woman with a big stick who's keeping okay, him away. Okay, so she's getting but more But he's still sniffing you. around, or he or she, he or she <laughs> is still, probably she, is still sniffing around. So I felt in the most intimate and personal way, the anger of the goddess. I have been bitten deeply, not tusked, but bitten deeply over the second chakra by an animal associated with the great goddess. So I realized I have to make reparations. I have to make up for Well, you also were stung by a bee after that. I stung by a bee, but that seemed to be natural that medicine. Was, a Turkish, that was the, Turkish, the immune Tur system. Turkish doctor on the beach said that it's as if the bee decided to give you some immediate emergency yeah, help. Yeah, that which is cool. So notice we're in the mythic realm. Uh, there is no, there's a complete interface, a complete field of interaction between mythic forces and ordinary human forces. And it's playing out in my life because of a cavalier idiotic remark made in a museum. But I have to, I have to pay up now. I have to make reparations. So I went and I made apologies to the goddess and I offered gifts to the goddess, to the goddess. I offered bread to the goddess, a gift of grain to the goddess of the earth. And I, I invoked the support of other feminine deities that have helped me. And Athena and her allies were very helpful to me. And I went to her sanctuary at Priene and I felt at home there. So it's a, it's a self-mocking story about the consequences of not realizing that these forces are still alive. Yes, because, you, and you were humble. You said, I've been a silly boy. Been, been a silly boy. I was a silly boy. And when you think about that, the whole notion of egregores. Yes. 
certainly there can't be any more prominent uh, example of them than the entities that permeate these statues that have long been regarded and honored and worshipped and feared. So whether you're invoking the original spirit, or if that original spirit is still attached to or permeating that particular you know, piece of uh, artwork, or whether it's as you would the imaginal realm versus the dream realm, or whether this is now a collectively rendered reality uh, entity that we as human beings have created is kind of irrelevant. It has its own life, it has its own mind and its own force, right? That's very well said. And thank you for the word egregore. You know, it was invented by Victor Hugo, the poet, because he needed a rhyme in a verse. It didn't exist until he decided to give us this I word. I didn't know that was the origin of the word. That's the origin of the word. But of Which course, is an entity. It's a, it's a, yes, of it's course. A created it's, it's, a, entity. it's a collective thought form mm -hmm. in a sense, Some, sometimes anchored in and pinned to a particular right. form, a statue or something like right. that. But it's a collective thought form. And these collective thought forms are active in our lives in many ways. We talked about the consequences of saying silly words in front of an ancient statue, but we see the potency of the egregores of collective thought forms in all sorts of ways. We see them in bad ways, bringing racism and hatred and dark forces, etc., as we've seen recurringly in human history. So we do need to think about and understand how human thoughts and groups of people sharing the same thought generate forms that have their own psychic life, their own autonomy. Absolutely, because think about it, Robert. Look at even right now in the United States and around the world where we have very kind of prominent leaders. Once we have an opinion established in mass about that leader or, or a rock star or anyone that's prominent, all of that energy is projected into that yes. living persona. Yes. And then what happens to them if they're interfacing with our collectively created sort of uh, imaginal entity of sorts. How does that affect a human being who has their own persona? Yeah. I've often wondered how that, how do those two meet? How do our beliefs projected in mass onto another human being affect them? Well, I think many of us are living inside the bubbles of reality created by thought forms or sustained by thought forms of this kind. When you think about what to do about them, my mind actually runs off to the old Ghostbusters movie. Remember, there's this horrible collective demonic being yes. that's going to manifest yes. in the streets of the city. You give it a ridiculous, a ridiculous shape. You shapeshift yes. it. You will it and wish it to take a form that's manageable. Maybe we need to think about that. Maybe we think about need to think about not so much darkly demonizing these forces we don't like, but making them so absolutely preposterous and ridiculous that they sort of self-destruct, self self-implode because nobody, nobody can believe I, them anymore. I think you should, be, mm. you should have the platform for just a few moments, as in the day that Earth stood still, and, and present this globally. These things that we resent and the things that we are putting so much negative and dark energy into, let's turn them into something almost comedic. Yes. And it would be interesting to see how... Um, how life would, literally, how the feeling of life would change. Yes. It would have to. I'm a great proponent of, of comedy. I think that yes. actually many of us in our, in our lives might recognize a moment when we have the choice of living the genre of tragedy or of comedy. Yes. I chose comedy some time ago. And mm -hmm. I think when we look at the worst things that are going on in our world, it could be very difficult to find any humor in the situation to begin with. But by finding that humor and shape-shifting the reality yes. into a com in, a, in a comedic sense that makes preposterous might, what might otherwise be terrifying, right. we might find a way forward. I think so. A different kind of egregore based on comedy. I love it. Gaia.com lets you explore over 8,000 films, documentaries, and original series. 
There's so much going on in the unseen world. Hidden truth. Why in the media today? They still seem to hold back on these incredible stories. Behind an unknown universe. Where science and spirituality all come together. Gaia.com. Content you can't find anywhere else. For more information, visit GaiaPodcast.com. Now we're speaking of entities. Now we're in the realm of uh, another being. And explain how this, did you end up calling it a diamond or daemon? It, it's very rude to call it a demon. Demon, yes, is, the, I know. demon is the we ancient pronunciation, but because of the church, we can't say that. D-A-I-M-O-N. D-A-I-M-O-N. I like to say diamond. It might be more correct to say daemon, but basically it's your call. Okay. So I like, I like to say daemon. So let's talk about this particular daemon and, yes. and how this came to be, this story came to be. Well, I, I'm possibly the most lunar man you'll ever meet. <laughs> lunar, I, lo, okay. Most, most lunar. I, I'm not saying lunatic, but most lunar. I've always felt a strong affinity for the astral realm of the moon. Yes. And uh, I've always felt myself able to have some degree of engagement with spirits, intelligences that live in that realm. Mm-hmm. It's a mixed realm. Which is an earth realm. It's, I mean, it is an it's earth transit path. closely connected to earth. Yes. In, in, the, in, the, in the belief of the ancient philosophers that I like best, in the belief of Plutarch and people like him, the, and the Neoplatonists in Greece, for example, the astral realm of the moon is the realm through which we pass on our way to higher realms, yes. and in which we leave behind an energy body, sometimes called the astral body, that we're not going to use anymore. It's also the realm through which many of us transit on our way to incarnation on earth. Yes, and that's a hermetic belief as well. This is our transit place, yes. back and forth, where we learn, we yes. do make decisions, come back to Earth. Yes. This lunar path. Yes. So what's accessible in the astral realm of the moon? Well, maybe it's a place of understanding some aspects of transitions after death and before birth. I think it's very useful in life to understand something about what happens before physical birth and even before conception, and a little bit about what happens after physical death. The astral realm of the moon is not the beginning and the end of it all, but it's an interesting transition place. And the spirits and intelligences of the realm of the moon have interesting things to contribute. So the book contains conversations with a being who I call and who is content to be called a daimon of Luna. He he has, if you ask him, other names, but that's the generic name for him. And he talks a little bit about his observations of human comings and goings in the realm of the moon, of different entities there that uh, might be influential among humans. I didn't include his guide to the shopping precincts of the astral realm of the moon, but but they're very extensive. (laughs) They're very extensive. Okay, so first of all, he said they're a very ancient lineage of beings Tell us what he showed you of them, of, of their presence. And he said they live in the moon, not on the moon, but in the moon. So let's talk about this order of beings. Well, there are different orders of beings. His particular order of beings feel a responsibility to intelligences from a higher level, particularly associated, I would say, with the Sirius star system, mm-hmm. the sun behind the sun. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I'm getting shivers as I say that to you. Yes, that I think makes that, sense. I think, I think in a sense he regards himself and his particular group of diamonds of Luna as intermediaries, gatekeepers, assistants. Which there would have to be. Drivers, chauffeurs yes. for beings who are operating from a higher level and beings who might be able to ascend to those levels after doing certain things in the realm of the moon. Again, I, this, this overlays with the Hermetics text yes, on this yeah. as well. And also, a uh, man named Walter Cruttenden, I don't know where it's landed in the world of astrophysics, but he had 
hypothesized as an amateur astrologer at a very high level. He holds conferences on this and brings all the big guns in. That the sun it was in a binary star system, which I think is now accepted. Yes. And he was positing that that binary star, if you go through the lens of the ancient Egyptians, yes. is serious. Yes. And the two are companion yes. stars. Yes. Right? I, th I think that's correct. I think that's correct. And I'm saying it would make your story yes. really very coherent. Yes, yes. I think it's a coherent story, even if it sounds a little bit creaky and antiquated in, in the language, mm. because actually in some ways these things were probably easier to understand 5,000 years ago in Egypt than they are today, because the channels were not so blurred, and because the clouds of psychic pollution around the planet were not as thick as they've become. It's become harder for us to attain or return to direct knowledge of some of these things, because... Uh, the psycho-spiritual realm around the earth is contaminated and confused. Yes, and we are going to get into that. That's toward the end of our conversation, so stay put, everybody, because we need to get into why so many of us are not dreaming anymore. Yes, we do. And this is going to be part of it. But in the Egyptian day, these, were under, these things were understood. They were honored. They were practiced. It was part of the collective mindset. The apertures and the sacred spaces were oriented towards Sirius and yes. so forth. So this was something that was accepted and known in the day of levels of high knowledge. Yes. So let's go back to your... Man, your your daemon or daemon, and his explanation of his people. I like what you've said so far. So they are gatekeepers, drivers, so to speak, guides, that both assist uh, uh, human beings that are transiting beyond the earth experience into other realms, but also in the reincarnation process. Then, uh, yes, quite possibly, and also in uh, setting up temporal or, or, or indefinite residence in the realm of the moon itself because there are intelligences, beings from this earth who choose to stay on that level of access and observation to the earth for various reasons, sometimes quite good reasons. Yes. They would like to keep an eye on the earth, intercede yes. in the minds of people on this earth and give them information from their point of view. And from the ramparts of the astral realm of Luna, so to speak, they might have access to us and be able to intercede in effective ways. Yes, and he gave you very, some very specific information, speaking about the soul path of individuals, that every person, every being comes in with a path that they have they have chosen to walk. Yes. And yet, he was explaining to you, you can make that choice before birth. You can be given the, you can see the key dates through your, your cosmic influences of astrology and so forth, where you get a green light or a red light on something, but that there are no guarantees mm -hmm. against what he called acts of God. Mm. And so explain this a little bit. Well, I think it's certainly in my personal mythology and maybe in his guidebook to the cosmos, uh, all of us do come here with a soul agreement, some kind of basic set of clauses and conditions we accepted before we came here. It might, might seem very strange to us in the midst of our life that we could possibly have chosen certain things that are happening or going on no, around. I'm with you on that. But, um, uh, but everything is subject to negotiation to a certain extent, and things are also subject to interruption. Mm -hmm. There are things that can cut uh, a life purpose short, that can cut a destiny short, that can cut, cut a lifeline short. There are intercessions and interruptions, so it's not predestined. There are accidents. There are accidents, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I do know, and here I want to go back to the dreaming. May yes. I do that for a moment? What I yes. do know as a dreamer 
is that one of the ways for all of us in any circumstance to get back in touch with soul, to get back in touch with purpose, to get back in touch with meaning and conscience is to recover our dreams. And one of the most frightening things to me about the state of our society, the theme of some of the stories in Mysterious Realities actually, is that so many of us today are suffering a dream drought. We are in fact bereft of the dreams of the night. We might have all sorts of practices. We might do yoga or kung fu or whatever, meditation or whatever. But we don't have the natural, ongoing, nightly relationship with dreams that most traditional cultures have prized and valued. Why? Because dreams show us how we are. They hold up a magic mirror to our actions and attitudes. And because they show us the future and they show us our connection with beings in other times and places. And they put us in touch with a wiser source of knowledge than the ordinary mind. So if we've lost our dreams, we might have lost the voice of conscience, the voice of soul, the voice of deeper wisdom. And what can we do about that? Well, there is a shamanic answer to this, which I want to really speak on this very important occasion with you, Regina. The shamanic answer is if you've lost your dreams, consider the fact that you might have lost the beautiful, bright dreamer in you. And you might have lost at some point in life. Soul fragmentation. Soul fragmentation, soul loss. Soul Soul loss loss. would be the shaman's existential diagnosis. And how could that happen? Well, maybe you remember, even if vaguely, a moment in your life when the world seemed so cold and so cruel, you didn't want to be here. You wanted to be somewhere else. You wanted to be in a garden behind the moon. You wanted to be in grandma's house. You wanted to be anywhere but here. Maybe you wished yourself dead. Could have happened at any age. It could have happened very young. It could have happened to the beautiful, bright teenager who was shamed or violated in some way. Part of you wanted to go away and wanted so hard to go away that she did go away. Is not with you soul loss in shamanic terms. And who is she? Who is this person? This might be the dreamer. This might be the one who never lost her dreams. But when you lost her, you lost your dreams. So what I'm saying is that maybe the antidote to the loss of dreams and the loss of connection with conscience and deeper wisdom that that brings is for us to find ways to call back the beautiful, bright dreamer, the magical child maybe in each of our lives. This is what interests me profoundly. This is actually at the center of my work as a teacher and healing at this time, helping people to connect again to the inner child, maybe the magical child who is the beautiful bright dreamer. Because when she comes home, when you can get her home, persuade her that you are safe and you are fun, your dreams come back. Yes, and this is something I wanted to find out. You've been doing this a long time. Yes. Are you seeing a difference quantitatively or qualitatively in people's dreams in conferences and workshops you do now versus 10, 20, 30 years ago. I see and feel a hunger for this, which is a much livelier hunger, a much more eager and voracious hunger than I remember 20 or 25 years ago. I think more people are aware that something is missing and they want to get it back. And I also see in my own work, in the workshops, online courses and so on that I do, I see an immediacy of results. If I say to someone, okay, you don't have your dreams, Can we help you call up the memory of an occasion from your childhood or better still, a dream from your childhood self? And can we use that maybe as a time tunnel for you to go back to your childhood self and play counselor, protector, cheerleader for her in her own time? And maybe in the process, bring something of her back to your present self? And someone might say, well, I'd like to try, but how do I do that safely? Well, I might then say to them, because I'm a shamanic dreamer, I might say, okay, why don't we connect you with an ally? Why don't we connect you with great mother bear who's going to come with you and put her immense potency and her love and protection and blessing all around you. So when you meet your childhood self, it's not alone. You have great mother bear holding you together. Mm -hmm. The results from this kind of approach, Regina, are astonishing. 
I mean, they're astonishing. Uh, how, because it's a matter of calling back. Yes, it's a matter of you calling something that belongs call to you. Back it, it, a belong, part of you. it belongs to yes. you. And also because let's, we're, also, we're also talking about our relationship with time here. Yes, let's get into that. I mean, this is transtemporal stuff, and some of my stories are about transtemporal stuff. The fact that from this moment of now, we might have the capacity to travel into the past and be present, at least in the mind of someone living in the past, whether it's a younger self or a person in a past life or an ancestral being, we might not only be able to go there and have a look around, we might be able to communicate at least mentally with that person in their own time. Mm -hmm. I believe this to be so. I think it's actually one of the things that's kept my life together to the extent it's stayed together. Mm -hmm. So we can travel into parallel lives. We can look at that Regina or that Robert who made a different choice and talk to them, maybe negotiate with them. Can we do something for each other? You did this so well. I haven't done that yet. Can you help me out? Well, yeah, I could offer you something in return. We might be able to try that. So, but where with, with the younger self, to be able to go back to your younger self using a dream or memory for a time tunnel, be counselor, protect a mentor for her in her own time and bring her energy and imagination, that's a really delicious idea. It is, and on that, I think this is a good time to segue into you in the parallel you who wrote this amazing book called Blue World, The Parallel You. Yes. You didn't know the difference in the moment. so. Let's talk about it because I think it's fascinating and it ties in with what you just said. Well, I'm aware that amongst my many parallel Roberts, there are writers who've done things I have not done as a writer in my reality. And one of the most interesting of these parallel Robert writers is the one who completed a book called The, 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 the Blue World, which was going to be a bit of sort of Harry Potter, the dream world kind of stuff and more. And I embarked upon it many years ago, and I got, had other things to do. I interrupted myself. I came at it again. I left it again. He finished it. He's been very successful. He's done a couple since. The whole series, there are movies. He is a beloved storyteller. So let's drop into your part cocktail party with him. <laughs> so, so, so I find myself at the New York Public Library. And it's a big event. It's a big, it's all for me. It's all for Robert Moss. There's my name. And there are these book jackets I don't quite recognize. Posters. Posters, yes, including the blue world. And there's waiters with champagne. I try to get a drink and nobody pays the attention to me as if I'm a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> and I go into the, there's an auditorium. There. I don't know whether the New York Public Library has an auditorium quite like this, but it's full of families with piles of Robert Moss's books. And there's the microphone, and I think, oh, great, I'll get up on stage. And then I see a parallel Robert. He's better dressed than I am. His hair is better kempt. He had nice shoes he, on, He's had very nice shoes, very nice Oxford brogues or something like that instead of my scuffed walking shoes. He looks really good. He's lightly tanned. He looks quite You said fit. his skin looked really oh, almost oh, tan. Yeah, oh, lightly tanned, he's beautiful. Lightly, he's beautiful. <laughs> he's beautiful. And, and I think, okay, well, uh, okay, maybe, maybe this, is, this is my dream self, right? I can jump into his situation, give this talk, and they're talking about all his best-selling positions and his sales. It's all good. And I try to get into a situation. He says, get the F out of here. I wrote these books you didn't. Go away. Don't bother me. <laughs> my God, I've just met my parallel self who's done something great that I haven't done. And he's not letting me in. And I come out of this and I start laughing at myself. I think, he, you know, he's right. I would have behaved the same way in his situation. <laughs> but since then, since the story, Regina, I've gone and I've had lunch with him in, in a dreamlike, non-ordinary reality. 
We've made a sort of tentative deal to help each other out, but I have yet to sort of take the actions that requires. So I can't report on the, on the, on the, the results just yet. But what does this mean to anybody else watching? Maybe it means this. Maybe if you discover you have a parallel self who did some interesting things you haven't done, maybe you could actually investigate bringing some of those gifts, some of that access, some of those connections, some of those skills into your present life. Maybe you could. Why not give it a try? What's to be lost? Oh, you're giving me some ideas here. I mean, it, usually it's things we've thought of and thought, ah, I probably couldn't do that. I don't have time or I wouldn't get the support I needed. So we kind of let those dreams go. So you're basically saying pick up on the thread of those dreams, those things that really lit our jets yes. and see where that takes us. Yes. Because that would bring back alive again that version of us that originally yes. had those dreams yes. and those intensely warm feelings. Well said. And maybe we can't catch up to all that parallel self has done, mm -hmm. having devoted all these years to something that we did. He's way down the road on uh, Blue but, Road, yeah, Blue, but, Blue World. But we can bring something. I mean, yeah. I have an artist, Rob. I loved art when I was a kid, painted yeah. a lot. I have, there's a parallel, Robert, the painter, who has skills I will never develop in this life. I can say that for certain sure. But when I think of him, I do a lot more drawing and coloring, watercolor pencils, etc. So my own art has come alive. I'll never paint in oils, probably, the way that he does. But just a sense of connection with him makes me feel happy, makes me feel cheerful, makes me want to pick up the colors and do something. I love it. Are you going to do Blue World or not? It sounds like a fascinating book. Uh, I have I have a project for this winter when I actually be at home for six weeks off the road. We'll see. Okay. Well, we'll see. And then maybe he'll let you have a cocktail with him down the road. <laughs> so this notion, though, um, now going back to, because I think we can inter intersplice some of the comments from the diamond entity throughout this, because he's also explaining to you that the nature of living in this particular, this reality, this third, third slash fourth dimensional human realm is, he called it a relentless forward moving of time. And that sounds very harsh and limiting to me. Hmm. What did he mean by that? Well, I can't speak for him at this moment because he's not in my mind right now. And as you use some of yes. the phrases, I have to grope around to remember exactly what I was reporting at right. that time. That is not actually my opinion. I mean, okay. I, I'm, talking, yeah. I'm talking to an entity right. who I think is more than an aspect of myself. I think he is a transpersonal entity who has yes. his own views. And his views are not necessarily to be taken as 100% correct. Yes. I'm getting myself These into, tru just his... I'm getting myself into trouble okay. again now. But, but <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, think, I think that I think the time is much more malleable, much more flexible. Yeah, that, that's what than, it sounds like. Than, and than this that is... fragment would suggest. Yes. And that's why I underscored it, because this is not in alignment with your experience. No and what you're saying. So we're going to let that one go. The only other one I wanted to bring up out of that whole um, chapter was something you made a comment on, and I'm only bringing it up for this reason. People seem to be in despair. And a lot of people, a huge percentage of the world's population are in despair and under pressure and exhausted. And one thing he did mention to you was the notion of suicide, mm -hmm. saying when you have a soul contract, you're here to live that contract. Mm -hmm. And suicide is not really the best option for you as a soul, on a soul level. Um, do you remember much about that part of it and why? Well, I mean, ending your life at a certain point, whether it's suicide or through illness or negligence or something, yeah. might, might in a sense be part of the circumstances you agreed to. It might be in your soul agreement. Mm -hmm. And there are things that amount to slow suicide, aren't there? I mean, there are mm -hmm. things that, habits that we take up, which are not the action of 
shooting yourself with a gun or jumping off a cliff, but yeah. in a sense, you know, we're going to take yes. you out sooner than you might. I think it's always foolish in life to think that you can get out of a situation by jumping out of this body in this life and going somewhere else, whether it's just a black hole or it's a place of respite and sanctuary. I don't think it's like that. I think whatever you're living in this life will continue to have consequences, and your story does not end with death, whether the death is by suicide or in some other way. Mm -hmm. And I think that many people who take themselves out early through suicide then have to go through the process of awakening to the fact that this didn't end, does not end the right. situation you're trying to escape. Having said that, I have great sympathy for people who feel they have the right to take themselves out because they're suffering incredible yeah, pain, incredible, incredible deterioration, right. or perhaps for, for noble reasons, right. for the protection of a cause or a family or something, like in wartime, something right. like that. So there is a case. There's a case for justifiable suicide. Mm -hmm. I, I would not say that suicide is wrong under all circumstances. But my mind goes to the situation of people who take themselves out because they find the, the world too tough, too harsh, right. too unsatisfactory, and think that they're ending the problem. You're not ending the problem. Right. Yeah. Well, I have no theology about all of this, um, Regina, but I do know as a dreamer, as a lifelong active dreamer, that consciousness survives physical death. I know okay. that. I've known that all my life. And I know that as a boy who died and came back through what we now call near-death experiences yes. also. So I know that whatever the consequences of, we did, of what we did or failed to do in this life, they continue. Yes. Uh, the, the, the waves go on. Right. So uh, If it, you can... Draw it in, within yourself the power to be able to balance it while you're embodied. Yes. All the better. You don't have yes. to carry it forward. Yeah. I found that it's terribly necessary for those of us who've lost someone in our ambit, in our friends or family, to suicide, to recognize that part of our responsibility now is probably going to be to offer forgiveness, because often they're now seeking forgiveness for the pain that they caused mm. and for the task left unaccomplished, and to call in guidance and blessing for them in yes. their new path. Because yes. sometimes they, having killed themselves, might go into the strange enormity of trying to call someone to them from this life in their loneliness, might right. try to draw someone else into a kind of suicide pact. That yes. happens so often. You yes. see it amongst kids. You also see it amongst adults as well. So we've got to be wary of that. We also got to be wary of people who condemn themselves to some kind of damnation, mm -hmm. thinking that they've committed a terrible sin now. So our role is going to be to be helpers, assist the imaginations of the dead, as Yates said we could do in general, mm -hmm. and call in guidance, blessing, and protection for everyone involved. And remember that forgiveness is the great healer. Beautifully said. We only have time for a couple more stories, and I'm going to give you a choice, but one of them I thought was interesting was... Um, Oh, you were t here, we're talking about happy hour for the dead, but we'll, we'll get there later. Uh, I thought we'd do a, a quick stop with uh, Carl Jung. Oh, yes. And his mm. other world. Yes. The other world of Bollingen. Yes. How do you say it? Bollingen? Bollingen. 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 Of Bollingen. If, if we're going to be Germanic, yeah, it no, is a please. German name. Bollingen. I didn't Bollingen. Know how to say it. No, no, I mean, it, it, uh, bo they say Bollingen in Switzerland. Well, uh, we know, I mean, it's, it's a story about a couple of encounters that I had with Jung in the imaginal space. Let me note mm -hmm. that when I talk about dreaming, I'm not just talking about sleep dreams. Yes. I'm not just talking about lucid dreams. I'm not even just talking about shamanic journeys or meditation. I'm talking about our ability to enter a liminal state of consciousness. A lot of my best dreaming is done in the space between sleep and awake, the hypnagogic zone. Absolutely. And I just want to quote a great source on all of this to our viewers, which is Tinkerbell from the Hollywood movie of Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. Tinkerbell said to Peter when Peter's sad because he was about to lose his fairy friend, 
She said, look for me in the place between sleep and awake. Yes. There I will always love you. There you will find me. This is great technical advice. Absolutely. The place between sleep and awake. So I want to notice, you know, for those who would like to get deeper into a practice out of all this, that spending more time in the twilight state between sleep and awake is a great mm-hmm. way to become a lucid dreamer. It's a great way to tap into transpersonal and inner sources of information and guidance that might be available to you. We are creative, we're psychic, we put things together in a creative way much more easily. So that's where a lot of these things come from. So my story of Jung is a story of a couple of encounters with him, but they, they, they are connected to what we know about his life from those who are close to him. We know that in the last years of his life, Jung dreamed again and again of what he called the other Bollingen. Now, Bollingen was his name for his retreat on Lake Zurich, near the small village of Bollingen, where he built a tower, and he did amazing murals and mosaics, and carved a huge cube of stone with mystical devices, and put above the doorway, invoked or uninvoked, the god is present, and did all this stuff, and worked with his hands like a craftsman, made himself big, meaty, Swiss-German peasant stews, because Jung was a man of the earth and the people. Anyway, but before he died, he started dreaming of another version of this thing, on the other side of death. And he said that these dreams gave him absolute confidence that he knew where to go when he died. And I think in the last of these dreams, he saw some kind of water animal, a mother animal, I've forgotten what it was, beaver, a muskrat, something like that, with her, uh, a, wolver, a wolverine perhaps, with her children in the water, playing in the water. This made him very happy, again felt confidence, he knew where he was going. Well, I had a couple of encounters with my version of Jung. I'm not going to be grandiose enough to say this is Jung the spirit or this right. is the essence of Jung. Let's, let's say the, the Jung that I love and right. respect gives me a partial tour of the other Bollingen. He won't show me more than a few things. I mean, he's, I mean, this is a protected environment. And if it is the place where he's living, he's not going to show me more than a few things. But the hilarious part, the really comedic part in the story is, he gives me a glimpse of the book that he's been writing on the other side. We know about the red book. Mm-hmm. This is the purple book. And it's called the Book of Heaven. In the, the title in Latin means the Book of Heaven. And he'll only show me, he'll show me hardly anything. He shows me the title of the introduction. The title of the introduction is why I am not a Jungian. <laughs> so I think some of my Jungian friends are probably furious with this, and some of them are laughing up their sleeves over it. <laughs> I love it. So it's a somewhat comedic version of what Jung's afterlife might be like. And also, as you wrote about it uh, in this experience you had, his other... Bollingen. Bollingen. Bollingen was uh, much more colorful. The colors didn't exist in this realm. So it was everything but kind of supercharged in terms of light and sound and frequency. It's, it's fantastic what has been done there with the mosaics. There are mosaics going up inside the tower, which are like an incredibly flourishing tree of life. Not just the Kabbalistic tree of life, but a tree rich in all the colors of nature and colors beyond the natural world. So it's a beautiful thing to see. Beautiful. And because you brought up this notion of the liminal state between dreaming and wakefulness, this, um, this is something, I'm bringing it up because recently I realized uh, my husband was talking to me when I was in the in-between place and it was very confusing for him because I noticed, and I'm bringing this up because it has to be many people have this experience, yourself included. You close your eyes and you're not asleep. You, but immediately, you're in another world. There are players that are involved with you. You're carrying on conversations very quickly, and you can't really tell the difference between the time when, uh, seconds ago when you were awake. And I'll be having conversations, and he'll enter in from his world and ends up in my conversations with other people in this state in between, and he's not clear what's going on. So what's, 
what's happening when you have whole casts of characters, whole planets and scenery and everything happening so quickly, just a second away from where you were when you're not asleep yet? Well, I think it's actually exactly as you're describing very vividly. Uh, I think we are, we're stepping in and out of not only different states of consciousness, we're stepping, stepping in and out of different scenes, different realities, even different worlds. And they're right there. I mean, I often feel when I'm returning from a dream, whether it's a sleep dream or this kind of liminal experience, as if I've literally, in a just so fashion, stepped from one room into another. That's what it feels like. And uh, it's, it ceased to be confusing for me, uh, but I sometimes won't write down the experiences because they're both so literalistic and realistic. I was yeah. with them. Now I'm over here. Okay, that's fine. I know them. Uh, right. Will I be with them again tomorrow night? Let's wait and see. Uh, I think that we are, not, we are multidimensional beings, and our ability to handle and interpret this and apply it in ordinary reality is limited by the fact that we live in a three-dimensional reality plus time. That's how we are. And if we try to operate beyond that with our physical bodies, we'll probably get into trouble. Mm -hmm. But we're talking now about the fact that in our larger selves, in the larger universe, we are multidimensional beings. And we are active and engaged on more than one plane of reality. And some of these other realities, by the way, have their own physics. There are other realities yes. you go to, you actually can't jump off the rooftop and fly because it's not oh, that I kind of... Oh, I go to that world too where I can that... bound from mountaintop to mountaintop oh, in yes. a single bound. Yeah. Maybe you can do that, but that's still, still not flying. So you might right. be able to bound from the mountaintops, but yeah. not fly. So and there sometimes are... it's flying. That sometimes it's, it's, some, it sometimes it's flying, and yeah. sometimes it's breathing underwater, and sometimes different it's not. Different physics. Different physics. I breathe underwater in dreams, so too. So it becomes, yes, uh, but, but it becomes very interesting, doesn't it, to discover that mm -hmm. we're in other universes that have their own physics. We might have superpowers yes. compared to what we have here, but they're not necessarily infinite powers. There are still physical laws at work in exactly. these universes. So what are we learning about? We're learning about the richness, the plenitude of the multidimensional universe. And let me say, Regina, when we come back to the fact that people are feeling sad and depressed and frustrated and angry about the horrible things going on in our world. This is not escapism to say maybe it will be helpful to remember that you are also a citizen of the multiverse, the multidimensional universe. You have other possibilities. You have other connections. Yes. You have other games to play. You have other places to fly. And maybe you can, by spending some more time there consciously, you can bring some joy and some juice back into Absolutely. this world. Absolutely. In that imaginal realm. Because that's also where our creations occur. Yes. And so if people don't, they say, oh, they're just a daydreamer off in their own world. Good for you. This is something we need to reclaim, our right to daydream. Yes. Not just nightdream, but yes. daydream and yes. create these beautiful realities. Yes. So yes. Uh, any final comment? You, I think what you talked about a little while ago about if you want to dream, if you've lost your dreams, call that part of you back. Call the dreamer back, right? And make a social practice out of sharing a story with a friend. It doesn't have to be a dream, a personal story. And learn how to do that in a way that is fast and fun and mutually sustaining. When we share stories or dreams, we say, if it were my story, if it were my dream, I'd think such and such. And then this is what I'd do about it. I might do some shamanic shopping. So having a way to, <laughs> having a way to socialize all of this and bring something to the table with a friend is one of the great incentives to bring a dream. Or if you don't have a dream, bring a story anyway. I agree. And I just have to say on that note, I have uh, a couple friends that just laugh at the ridiculousness. If I need something in the physical realm, I'm shown a picture 
It comes in from somewhere. I'm shown a picture of where to go. I'll go there. It will be there, and it'll usually be half off. Okay? It just works like that to such a, an absurd extent that I always call this one friend, and she just says, I hate you. <laughs> How does this work? I, I need I some new guides. But So it's not surprising that I would go to my favorite little places in that dream world as well. And it's not all. It sounds like I'm a, like a shopaholic in dream time. I'm not. That's just here and there. <laughs> So anyway, Robert, it's been absolutely delightful. Um, I think that you've opened up people's minds to give, give us permission to really put dream state both awake and asleep as a priority and center stage in our life to start creating this vital, alive, colorful um, reality that so many of us have lost touch with, certainly by the time we're seven or eight years old. What a dream conversation, Regina. Thank you so much. And let's all remember... If we can dream it, we might be able to do it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. The title of Robert's book is Mysterious Realities. You can also take a look at my previous interviews with Robert in the Conscious Media Network and Gaia archives by searching his name there. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gaia's Consciousness Podcast. Learn even more at Gaia.com and watch interviews, movies, and original series all to empower the evolution of consciousness. For more information, visit GaiaPodcast.com. Gaia. Watch. Belong. Transform.